0: All right, let's get our Bibles out and open to Habakkuk chapter 2, page 1082 in the Pew Bible in front of you, or you can open your Bible to Matthew and back up. Five books, go slow, they're small. The book of Habakkuk is only three small chapters. We're in chapter 2, this is week 3 of our sermon series that I'm calling Upstream, and i uh, If you haven't been with us and you're wondering what in the world is a Habakkuk, what is that? Well, it's a little book that has uh, big truths to teach us in this uh, season in which we find ourselves in. A couple of weeks ago, when we started this series, when I stood up and said, get your Bibles out and open to Habakkuk. Um, a lot of you were, you know, like looking like, what are you talking about? And Pastor Brian was looking like, what are you talking about? Because our plan for a long time was for me to start a series on marriage and family. But in the days leading up to that, as I finished the book of James, I could not uh, do it. I just couldn't do it. God just kept pressing me on this issue of Habakkuk, and this is a book that has meant a lot to me over the years, so I'm very familiar with it. I knew exactly what it was about and what it uh, had to say. I've preached various messages from this book before, and so I was understandably doing my best to resist starting a series on the book of Habakkuk because I knew that if God were pressing us to study the book of Habakkuk, there must be a reason. And I was uh, smart enough to know that it was going to be a tough reason. And so here we are in the middle of this study and we recognize uh, why it is that God would have us here. I called this series upstream because in this season of life in our culture and our time, oftentimes I feel as if I'm swimming upstream. Many of you, no doubt, feel like you are swimming upstream against the current. Life has a way of shaking us and even shaking our faith. And we are no, we've never been in a time, I don't believe, where we are more familiar with that feeling or sensation that the world is out of control, maybe than these days, both nationally, globally, and then. Personally, right here among us in this faith family. So let's pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll study, finish out Habakkuk chapter 2. Let's pray. Jesus, darkness trembles because darkness knows you, it doesn't tremble. For any other reason apart from the reality that you are exactly who you say that you are. And as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the victor over sin and death, your reign is unmatched and unparalleled and cannot be challenged. And therefore, darkness must flee from you. We come before you this morning asking you to speak to us through your word. This word that over thousands of years you have spoken to every generation, to every people group in every corner of the globe. And every time your word is opened, it is relevant and pertinent and true and meaningful and powerful unto salvation. And so we pray that this morning you would take this word That we, by no accident or means of our own, have found ourselves before. And that you would implant it into our lives and use it in a way that you would get glory from it and through it. So thank you for this opportunity that you've given us. We pray for ears to hear and that our hearts might receive what you have in store. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I think about what it feels like to swim upstream, and I think about how easy it is to get discouraged and to get tired and to get fatigued and frustrated when uh, it's not... It's not just that the current is pushing against us. It's not just that we feel as if the crowds or the multitudes are going one way and we're going another way. All of those things make it difficult and challenging. But beyond that, it's those moments in life, those seasons that we find ourselves in life where we feel like as the crowds are passing us, they're taunting us or mocking us. As if the voice in our head is saying, To us, I told you this wouldn't work. Or the decisions that you make to do the right thing or the hard thing that were supposed to pan out or supposed to work for good. What happened to that? And you feel this taunting or this mocking. And it made me think about Jesus hanging on the cross. And as he hung there, the passersby taunting him and mocking him, and in their mind believing that they had won and that his choices to do the hard thing had failed. And so as we think about what the prophet Habakkuk might say to us this morning, I want to begin with this truth on your listening guide that suffering is not a failure of God's plan. You see, Habakkuk comes to God in great frustration and agony because God's called him to go to his people, yet his people have turned their back on God. And beyond that, it appears in every way that evil's winning and that good is not prevailing and that God is absent and not listening. And Habakkuk is sort of at his wits end, if you will. And so he comes to God with these questions like, God, how long is it going to be? When are you going to hear? What are you going to do about all of the injustice that's happening? Why don't you make things right? Why don't you use the power and authority that you have? And God answers Habakkuk in a way that He never could have imagined in a way that we never would have predicted. And he says to Habakkuk that he's raising up a yet even more wicked people, the Babylonians, to come and bring judgment upon his wicked people. So to get this straight in your mind, God tells Habakkuk that he's raising up a more wicked people to deal with the wickedness of his people. Now, how does that sound for you? And so Habakkuk is sort of left in bewilderment, but here's what Habakkuk knows. He only knows one thing. What I just told you doesn't make sense to you, and it didn't make sense to Habakkuk. But Habakkuk knows that God has a plan. He knows that God is involved. He doesn't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to him. He can't wrap his head around it. But he knows God has a plan. Because God told him that. And so he goes up in the beginning of chapter 2. He goes to a high place. He goes to a quiet place. He gets a new perspective. He is seeking clarity from God. And he's going to wait there. And he's going to allow God to, to speak to him and correct him. And so God is going to continue to answer what Habakkuk has been asking, but in the way that only God can. In the way that God answers Habakkuk is the way that He answers me. Now, I'm not there in your prayer life, I'm not there in your spiritual relationship, private, personal relationship with God, but I can assure you this is exactly how God deals with me, and I would be willing to bet if you walk with God, this is how He deals with you, because this is who. God is. He doesn't answer the way we want in the time and manner and fashion in which we would like. But he does answer. And what he says oftentimes leaves us a little more perplexed than where we started. You see, what God's going to do this morning, he's going to reach down and he's going to lift the chin of Habakkuk. He's just going to lift it up just a little bit in the midst of all of his suffering and all the trials and difficulties of his circumstances and heartache that he's facing. And he's going to take his eyes off what's right before him. And he's going to show him just a glimpse of what's ahead. Clarity. He's going to give him clarity like we talked last week. So, to begin, justice delayed is not justice denied. This is sort of the theme of what God says to Habakkuk. God answers in verses 6 through 20. And what we see is Habakkuk's waiting for God to sort of explain, wait a minute, why are the Babylonians coming and how is this right and I don't understand this and... And Habakkuk's main objection is how wicked the Babylonians are. See, the, the, Habakkuk doesn't say, hey, God, your people don't deserve that. He doesn't say that. Because he, they do. And he knows it. What he says is, is that these Babylonians are so wicked and evil, how could you possibly use them? So God answers by pronouncing these woes, if you will, these warnings. And we need to understand that these are warnings about the behavior of the Babylonians, but they're not given to the Babylonians. They're given to Habakkuk. So you got to think with me for a moment. We need to make sure that we hear this in the proper context. This is God letting Habakkuk in on the reality. This isn't God pronouncing judgment through Habakkuk. Let me show you. There's five sections. The first one, God pronounces a warning or a woe to the greedy. Look at verse 6. Will not these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, woe to him who increases what is not his? How long? Question mark. And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppresses you and you will become their booty because you have plundered many nations? And the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Now let me just explain to you what's happening. God says to Habakkuk about the Babylonians, he says, they're plunderers and they've been plundering and they're going to be plundered by those whom they have plundered. God's going to reverse the tables. God's going to turn the tables on the Babylonians. They've been been greedy and they've been building their their nation and their assets and their power by stealing and taking and pillaging from other people. And those other people are going to rise up and execute justice on the Babylonians. Now... Historically speaking, it's only 50 years after this moment when the mighty, undefeatable Babylonians get utterly demolished and wiped off the face of the earth in 50 years. But the point we need to receive and understand is that God is beginning to show Habakkuk that he is aware of what's going on. He does know everything that the Babylonians are doing and that he is a God of justice and that he will, in his time and in his way, execute justice because he's a just God. And he takes it personal. Whenever people in any time, way, manner, or fashion take advantage of, or oppress those who are weak. So he pronounces a warning against the greedy. Then look at the next part, beginning in verse 9. He's going to address the separated is what I call them. Verse 9, "'Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, "'that he may set his nest on high, "'that he may be delivered from the power of disaster.'" You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul? Verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Now let me break this down for you. What God is pointing out is that the Babylonians are doing what people have always done, And what people continue to do today and that is those who gain power and uh, money and possessions and control use those things that they gain to separate themselves or protect themselves from the evils or the problems of the world. So in other words, what the Babylonians were doing was they were taking all of the plunder that they were receiving and they were using it to construct big safe houses that separated them or insulated them from all the problems, the poverty, the struggles of the world. Does that sound familiar? So what we do is we Save up our money and we buy a house where there's not, we're not, we want to be away from the problems. We want walls around our property. We want to live in a gated community. We want to be where if we can live in this little world and pretend that there's no problems in this world, where we don't have to see all the struggles and the problems of the world. It's exactly what God's pointing out about the Babylonians. That The world is a a place where there's need and there's difficulty and there's struggle. And so what God says to them is that He's going to take the very things that they use to construct the places to separate themselves from pain and He's going to use those things to expose their vulnerability and He's going to Look what he says. He's going to use the rocks from their walls and the timbers from their buildings to cry out against them as they crumble to the ground, exposing them and leaving them vulnerable, which they always were, by the way, but they just made themselves feel in some way secure by their human efforts to separate. You see, God is a God who is aware... Jesus said the poor will always be among us that only a fool would try to construct a world where there was not need and there was not poverty and there was not suffering because that's not this world it will never be this world but what God has said is that those who do not suffer who are not impoverished are responsible to care for those who are and who do And so he uses the very things that mankind tries to use to separate themselves to humiliate them. Then number three, he addresses the self-reliant in verse 12. He says, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the people's labor to feed the fire And nations weary themselves in vain. So he's addressing the fact that mankind has this tendency, just like the Babylonians, to devote their life to working hard at all the wrong things. To investing all their energy and all their effort in trying to Create something that is all just vanity. And God says it's all going to burn up like smoke and amount to nothing. All the human efforts, all their goals, all their accomplishments will prove to be vain. You see, the the Babylonians were very devoted to what they did. You, You know, being a marauding army is like anything else that you endeavor to do in life it doesn't just happen you have to work at it they worked at being uh, tenacious in battle they worked at developing and honing in their weapons they worked at how to torture people to make them succumb to their pressure they worked and perfected their mechanisms for taxation and oppression they worked at those things they were devoted to those things And God's saying that He's aware of that and that He's going to deal with that and that it's not going to, though it may seem as if they're getting away with it, they won't. And today we live in a world that in so many ways is devoted to all the wrong things. Our energy and our effort so many times as a culture and a people is completely wrapped up in vanity and our human efforts and accomplishments are simply laboring to feed the fire then he turns to the amused look at verse 15 woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor pressing him to your bottle even to make him drunk that you may look at his nakedness and You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed and uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory for the violence done to Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Now I want you to... Notice with me for a second about the amused that this, the the Babylonians, part of their wickedness was their escapism. Mankind has always looked for ways to escape their reality, to numb their pain, to hide from that which is before them. And so here we are in the midst of a pandemic. I just want to point some things out to you. A global pandemic that has captivated the world and certainly captivated us. And if you uh, turn on the news and you listen to the reports on the news, uh, they will tell you that 160,000 people... Have died from COVID 19. 160,000. And it's got our nation paralyzed and countless millions of people living in fear. And it's a shocking and harsh reality. But it's interesting to me as I read these verses that a hundred thousand people die every single year from alcohol-related deaths and nobody seems to care. Where's the fear and the panic and the trepidation and the who's who's outraged at that? No one even cares about those 100,000 people. And that's, that's not a one-time pandemic. It's year after year after year after year after year after year. Every year. That think about 13 million people today. 7% of this nation's population are alcoholics. of every American citizen has an alcoholic in their extended family. I'm listening for the coronavirus statistics. It pales in comparison, yet it just... 50% of all domestic abuse is alcohol related. 75% of all child abuse is connected to alcohol, yet no one seems to care. So for those of you that are raging in your spirit right now against me, good for you. And if you are bold enough and brave enough to email me or speak to me about this topic, then here's my promise to you. The next time that I go and intervene in a young mom's house where her children are sleeping on the floor, where all the walls have holes in them and every door has been kicked in, where a deadbeat husband is laying on the floor in a pile of empty liquor bottles, and we have to take her and her children, and we have to put them in a safe place and try to restore them as the people that God created them to be. I'm going to come to your house and get you and take you with me on that journey. God says, woe to him who makes someone drink. My question to you is, who's making all these people drink? And what do you think of when you hear God say, woe to him who makes people drink? You know what it sounds like to me? In the Hebrew, do you know what that verse means? It's a Facebook post. So go ahead, flaunt it, and see where it gets you. Then God turns his attention to the deceived. He says, what profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, the maker of its mold, should trust in it to make mute idols? Woe to him who says to wood awake or to silent stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Now, when we read a passage like this, you you know what we think? We think how primitive a people must be to take something that they've created themselves and to make it into an idol, to to carry it wherever they go, to, to turn to it whenever they need something, to rely upon it when they need guidance or wisdom, to worship it. How primitive, and and surely we are far too enlightened and far too advanced to ever succumb to such foolishness as this. We would never, ever take a piece of wood or a silent stone or something overlaid with gold and silver. Would we? Or would we carry around a little rectangle screen everywhere we go? And if we were ever without it, we would feel vulnerable. And when we had it, we would feel safe. And when we need to know something, we would turn to it. And we would rely upon it as our source of direction and information. And it's merely... Something made with human hands. Never intended to be our God. And so God says, I see what the Babylonians are doing, Habakkuk. I've taken inventory, just as I have of all people in all places at all times. I know what's going on. Now, Habakkuk no doubt says, Well, praise the Lord, now I feel fantastic. That answers all of my questions. All of my problems have gone away. In other words, Habakkuk is still in the same heart wrenching, disastrous situation that he was in before God said anything. None of his circumstances have changed. God didn't say, well, i changed my mind. I just said that to scare you. Now I'm just going to make everything great. That's not what happened. God says to Habakkuk, here's what I'm going to do. And I want you to know that I'm a God of justice and that I'm paying attention and taking an inventory and account of everything that's going on around you. And all evil will be dealt with. It'll be dealt with. None of it's going to slip through my fingers. None of it. And so, for example, in Proverbs chapter 11, where the Scripture says, though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the righteous will be delivered. You see, that's an upstream verse. That's what it feels like. The wicked are joining forces. You feel outnumbered, outgunned. You're wondering, I mean, is it worth it? Why? Why, why, why would I do this? Or why am I doing this? Or should I keep doing this? Or what's the point of this? It doesn't seem to be making any difference. It's not helping. Why does God answer the way God answers? Well, here's the message that God is sending to Habakkuk and to me and to you. You don't have to understand the plan to, to trust God's purpose. You see, again, Habakkuk knows that God has a plan. And how do we just trust in the fact that God has a plan? I mean, how do we, we, when your life is falling apart around you, your heart is shattered in a billion pieces, how do you find solace or comfort or peace, that God has a plan. Well, God gives us a little clue in what He says in the final verses of this chapter. See, He says some some things that are clearly for one specific reason, and that is for us to understand that In His plan is a purpose. Let Let me explain it to you this way. Sometimes my children ask me questions that are more complex than their little minds are able or ready to comprehend the answer to. And any of you that have small children at home know what I'm talking about. So they understand enough to ask this high and lofty question, but they could never understand the answer to the question. So here's what oftentimes happens to me. They ask me a question, and I will say, well, they'll say, why is this the way it is? And I'll say, because. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when I say because... There's something that happens. There's a mutual understanding. In other words, when I say because, I'm not saying that there's not an answer. I'm saying that there is an answer, but that you can't understand the answer. See, because means there's, there is a reason. I just can't explain it to you right now. And then what they do is they say, okay, Dad. They trust that I know the reason, and that maybe sometime in a future time they'll be mature enough to receive it. So, what God basically says to Habakkuk here is because. That's what he's saying to me and you. He's coming to us in the midst of our frustration. And our agony and our hurt and our pain and our bewilderment or whatever it is. And he's saying, because. I got a plan. And I'm about to let you in on a little glimpse of my purpose. But you cannot understand the totality of what's going on. Look at verse 14. Here's his because. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now I want you to just think about this for a second. In the middle of this long, brutal list of verses about all these injustices that are going on that God's taken inventory of, that he's fully aware of everything that's going on, that nobody's getting away, getting a free pass for anything, He says that the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. See, what he's saying is is that when the story is entirely told, when the last page of this narrative is read, Everyone's going to see how every event and every season in human history all work together for me to accomplish this perfect end. So what I want you to understand this morning is that you can write it down, you can carve it in stone, you can... Take it to the bank with you. You can do whatever it is you need or want or must do. But one day, very soon, Jesus is going to return. And when Jesus returns, the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Now, I want you to think about what that says. The Bible doesn't say that the whole earth is going to be filled with his glory. What God's saying to Habakkuk and what He's saying to me and you this morning is that the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of His glory. What God wants you to know this morning is that today it's because but if you are in my family, if you're my child, there's coming a day when you're going to see, you're going to understand, you're going to know. you're going to It's not just going to be my glory. You're going to know the knowledge of my glory. You're going to see the way that we got here. You're going to see the millions and millions of ways that I worked all these things together for good. You're going to see that my plan was orchestrated to perfection. And that I win, I always win. I was always going to win. And it was never in jeopardy. Now think about what else that verse says. That verse says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth in a very particular and special way. The way that water fills the sea or the sea fills the earth. Which means, how does water fill something? Water completely immerses itself in whatever it is put into. In other words, water takes on every single aspect, every nook and cranny of wherever it is placed, meaning that there's not one tiny little shred of space in this world that will not be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Now that's important. And here's why. Because there's times in our life when we need to know something about God's purpose. Because life is ripping us to pieces. And swimming upstream can seem like a futile endeavor. So, In the wee hours of Tuesday morning after a long and sleepless Monday night, I found myself just wrecked, just unable to. Process, And your mind begins to say things in those moments and try to convince you of things that you hope are not true. But that voice in my head, it says, you know, Tony, if you would have never started Rescue 100, this would have never happened. It reminded me of that moment sitting over in the East Sanctuary in that very first Rescue 100 training as I looked around the room at all those families sitting at those tables and I thought to myself, dear God, what have I done? All of these people that I love are about to go into this painful endeavor. So I thought about Habakkuk. And I thought about God I thought about his plan, and I thought about what I know about his purpose. And none of those things matched the circumstances that I'm facing. So I got down on my face, and I just started crying out to God. And I said, God, I'm not moving until you help me. I'll stay here forever. But I I don't know what to do with this. And as I lay there and my spirit began to be quieted within me, I began to see a little glimpse of God's perspective I said Wednesday night that I, I felt as if I were wearing a sweater that were woven of pain and as I lay there in my brokenness and in my heartache God began to pull a little thread from that sweater and he began to draw my attention to away from my perspective and toward his perspective and I began to imagine Sterling's little face Except for he wasn't two. And he was filled with joy. And he was in total satisfaction and perfection in the presence of God. And God just began to pull that thread out of that sweater. And he started to just unravel that sweater of pain that was around me and as I lay there and I began to just imagine God's perspective of this and all that he can see that I can't see it was like that that yarn just kept pulling and it was slowly just unraveling off of me I didn't want it to stop. I just wanted God to keep pulling and pulling and pulling. And I just kept seeing the goodness of God in the midst of my pain. And peace began to settle over me that passes all understanding. And it was like we sung Afflictions eclipsed by glory. They're still there, but they're eclipsed. You see, verse 14, it's like a shout from heaven to all of us who are swimming upstream. It's like God saying, I know that today is hard. I know that you don't understand this. I know that you're devastated. I know that you're heartbroken. I know that you're bewildered. I know that you're frustrated. But I see you, little fish. Keep swimming. I see you. And I see the pain that you're in. And I see the oppression that's around you. And I see all of the evil that befalls you. But keep Swimming because it's worth it. Because I win. Because if you knew what I knew. If you could see what I could see. If you could understand that there will come a day when every single molecule of this world will be filled with the knowledge of my glory. Don't quit. Don't give up. You see, you spend a little time in God's Word and you realize that when we hurt, we really only have two choices. We can hurt with God or we can hurt without Him. But that's the only two ways because we're going to hurt. Because we live in hurt and it doesn't matter how high we build our walls. It doesn't matter... How hard we work to insulate ourselves. The world is filled with hurt. And we're going to hurt as long as we're in this world. And when I got up off the floor, I just was overwhelmed with the worship of the God that I know. And I thought to myself, what would someone do who doesn't know And then God ends this section in verse 20. He says, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. See, He's in His holy temple. He's, he's in the control center of the universe. He's in the, the preeminent Position of power and authority. He's not relegated to the, the side. He, he's in a position where he can see and he can obtain and he can control and he can do as he sovereignly wills and pleases because he's in his holy temple. And so as some of us may have walked in here today asking, why me? Or If I were, God, I would never have let this happen or how could this be or whatever the question is you're asking. What you are hearing back from God's word is that when you are confused and when you are bewildered and when you are heartbroken, I have a plan. And it's leading to my purpose. But everything between those two things is beyond your understanding. But rest assured that when it seems like the bad guys are winning, when it seems like all of the hard things that you're doing are for nothing or wasted or make no difference, If there's no way out or there's no way through or there's no hope within, whatever the case may be, worship God anyway. And maybe when I say that, you say, well, that just sounds wonderful, but how exactly can I do that? I can't just blindly worship God in the midst of my agony. Well, I'm not blindly worshiping God in the midst of mine. I'm worshiping God based on who I know God to be. Based on the reality that when I open the Bible, I read about a God who uses Joseph's brothers to betray Him and to sell Him into slavery so that God can orchestrate beauty and glory by rescuing His people. I realize that that in the midst of wandering in uh, the wilderness for four decades, that God uses the suffering and the circumstances to bring about and to raise up and to prepare a people to be everything that He created them to be. That even in Pharaoh, in all of his wicked decisions, God accomplished exactly what God desired to accomplish. And so even with the Babylonians that are threatening and coming. And beyond that, that God used the Roman Empire and even the religious leaders of the Jewish people who acted in evil in their own free will and accomplished exactly what God had endeavored to do. So therefore, I can worship God in the midst of a storm, knowing that he is a God who doesn't fail. And though I can't see, I can worship. And so when God says, look above look beyond see that when your circumstances when they force us to come to god what we find is mystery the majestic mystery of god's sovereignty love and trustworthiness he is a glorious god And when we go to him, he will be a strong tower and a shelter for us in our time of need. But when we ask him about all the ways in which he's going to do this or that with this or that, rest assured there's an answer. We're just not ready to hear it.